Well, good morning, my friends. I'm glad to be here with you. Um, it's it was uh, most of uh, a month ago, probably, that I chose the passage to preach on for today. And I know that uh, uh, it seems to have been uh, providential that uh, I decided to preach about the resurrection in Genesis 22, that Abraham sacrifices Isaac, because you see the lectionary has all resurrection passages in it. Um, over and over we read about resurrection in the lectionary this morning. Now, I normally have uh, come with a, uh, an insistent attitude of preaching from the lectionary, which is my normal Anglican habit. Um, but since I didn't do that to you this morning, I'm going to do uh, do one, uh, another uh, Anglican thing and talk about Lent for a moment. Um, and uh, we find ourselves here in the fifth fifth week of Lent, a time uh, now. Uh, I want to say about Lent that uh, there are some I think who fear Lent because of the idea that it that somebody has made a law that we have to follow uh, that is not enforced by the Bible, but uh, I, I don't uh, practice Lent in a way that uh, perceives there to be a law that we must follow that uh, comes from somewhere outside of Scripture, but rather see it as a time to challenge myself to give up something that is good that I can return to. Uh, the uh, in uh, in our in our tradition and in our habit, uh, Sundays are feast days always, and so you cannot fast on a Sunday. So Sundays in Lent are Sundays in Lent and not Sundays of Lent. Um, so Sunday is always a day off, and that's why the forty days of Lent takes longer than forty days on the calendar because all those Sundays break it up. Well. Um, one of the things about Lent is that you are encouraged. You are encouraged to do three, three types of things. One is giving up something good that is not forbidden, right? Something like sugar, something like meat, something that you could uh, rejoice in doing. It is a good thing, but you are going to self-discipline to teach yourself, I can say no to something I want. Uh, another one of those things is to give up things that you shouldn't do, right? So if you know that you have a certain sin that is um, tripping you up, it's a good time to, while you're practicing learning self-discipline, practice not doing something sinful. Now, when Sunday comes around, you don't get to return to the sin. Um, um, I spent all week not being drunk. Now it's Sunday. I can... But, you, that's not how it operates. But so you see there's a difference between giving up something that is good and giving up something that is evil. And we're encouraged, of course, to do both. And when Lent is over, you can keep right on giving up that evil thing. You've got a runway and you can keep going with it. And the third thing is add in something good. Say, some, I'm going to spend extra time reading the Bible. I'm going to spend extra time praying. And, of course, fasting in the Bible is often paired with prayer. You fast, you have extra time to pray. Uh, and the, the uh, power of prayer seems to be 
stronger with prayer. Um, we have heard that that uh, certain kind of demon, this kind only goes out by prayer and fasting. Um, so I said all that to say that when I get around to the application of what I'm going to preach about today, I want to apply it. I'm going to take a principle from the passage and then apply it to some other things. I want to apply it to giving up things that are evil and pursuing things that are good. And and I'm going to say that sometimes giving up what's evil is hard. And sometimes doing what is good is hard. And both of those things can be uh, pursuits that are made difficult and made hopeless by the fact that they are slow. It, uh, we, we, as we do them, we give up, we lose hope because we feel like I see no light in the end of the tunnel. I see no reason to believe that this thing is going to end up well. But what you need to know is God has promises in the Bible for resisting evil. And God has promises in the Bible for pursuing what is good. And the strength of the truth of that promise is the power for enduring the difficulty of waiting for receiving that promise. I want to say that, uh, say that again. How true God's promises are is the power you need to endure the pain of waiting on God's promises to be fulfilled. God's promises are true, so endure while you wait. And that principle I'm going to take from Genesis 22 in Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. Now I want to I say I kind of wanted to prepare you for that because I'm going to spend the time doctrinally looking at Genesis 22, and then I'm going to turn around at the end and say, now let's look at James 4. And I don't want you to go home and say, I can't really remember what the sermon was about. Was it something in James, or there was all this stuff in, there was some stuff in Romans, a bunch of passages in Genesis. So, that's where we're going. We're going to talk about God's promise to Abraham that enabled Abraham to do what was painful only to receive the promise as a thing that he should have pursued in Genesis 22. Now I want to get one more big goal out of talking about this today. Genesis 22 is a weird passage. It's the only time we ever hear God tell one of his people, his faithful saints, to kill his child. Thank you, Kim. Prescient, as always. Genesis 22 is a passage that bothers people. Because why is that in the Bible? I had a friend I grew up with who uh, is no longer with us. He is alive, but he is not a part of the church anymore. And uh, years ago on Easter, Easter week, I remember him bragging about his atheism online. And uh, 
pointing to Genesis 22 as a as a reason he thought was sufficient on its own to not believe the Bible um, because who could be so stupid as to follow a God who would say to kill your son so I want to get out of talking about this the fact that we could we could walk around and talk about this with people and say not be embarrassed about the Bible or about God, or about what the Bible says is happening here, and also not be afraid that maybe God might say something like this to us, or worry about what would you do if God told you to sacrifice your son. Um, so for some context, if you were to look at, and if you're writing down passages, this is the time to write down a list of passages. If you were to look up Leviticus 18, verse uh, 21, or if you were to look up Leviticus uh, 20, verse 3, or uh, Deuteronomy 12, you would Deuteronomy 12, 30, and 31, or Deuteronomy. Um, there's a there's a second one, Deuteronomy 18, verse 10. These are four passages that forbid the sacrifice of children. I, I want to uh, read just one of them for you so you can hear this with your own ears and know that the Bible says this, and then we can deal with the problem of the fact that it says the opposite in Genesis 22. So we're looking at Deuteronomy 12 for a second here. Deuteronomy 12, verse 30 says... It's 29, actually, through 31. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you not be ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, that you not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods that I also may do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burnt their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. All right. So, God says clearly there, don't burn your children in offering. Not only does he say don't burn your children in offering, he says, I Not only does he say, I hate that, he says, I want to give you an example. The Canaanites, I just slaughtered them because they did that. So, character of God question. Does God accept child sacrifice? No. All right, what the heck is going on in Genesis 22? In Genesis 22... We need to read the passage. I realize we have gotten to that point and not read it. All right. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said to him, Here I am. He said, Take your son, 
your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship, and I and the boy will come again to you. You can't see that, but it's a plural. We will come back to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid, on, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord, that is, God himself, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and beheld, behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The word of the Lord thanks be to God this I'm gonna I'm gonna add on a few verses in a little bit from the end of this but that's the meat of our passage there what are the first words in this chapter after these things and I think those are good key words to talking about this passage because Genesis 22 is the climax of a story if you read the most tense, most twisty part of a mystery story, but you only read that part, and then you said, I don't like this book, so weird stuff happens in it. Someone says, did you read the whole thing? And you said, no. Well, you need to go back and read the whole thing. That part will make a lot more sense if you read the rest of it. I don't want to read it now that I read this part. This part's bad. And that's what we have with an atheistic challenge to this. I don't want to read the rest of the Bible. This part's gross. You really need to read the first part because this part doesn't mean anything without all the parts that come before it. What's going on 
before this happens. What's going on before this happens is that Abraham and God have been talking a lot over a lot of years. Abraham first comes to have conversations with God around the age of 75 in Genesis 12. And then 24 years later, God comes to him again after many, after many times of talking to Abraham. One of the times he comes to him is around when he's 100 years old. He's 99 and God says, next year your wife will have, have a son, Isaac. And then now here we are at a point where Isaac is still in his house, but grown enough to carry a big bundle of wood. So however old that is, maybe he's 12, maybe he's 15, maybe he's 18, who knows how old he is, it doesn't tell us. So Abraham at this point is, a, what, 115 years old? And he's been, we've been going on in this cycle for 40 years now of God talking to him over and over and over saying one thing. What is the thing that he's told him over and over for 40 years? But I want to, I want to read you some of it. Uh, ask your patience, because afterwards you may say that I just read you the story of Abraham and the dead horse. Because this, what he says, he says over and over and over to him, to the point where if you were prone to missing a point, you shouldn't miss it. Here's the point of what's going on in Genesis. Genesis 12, 2. I will make of you a great nation. Genesis 12, 6. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land, so the Lord appeared to Abram. At this point, he's Abram before he's changed to Abraham. And said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. In chapter 13, after separating from Lot, verses 16 and 18. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that one can count the so that if one could count the dust of the earth, your offspring also could be counted. And there he built an altar to the Lord. I want to point that out along the way. Something that happens frequently in here is God makes a covenant promise to Abraham, and Abraham sets up an altar and worships God because of the promise. In chapter 15, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward will be great. And Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And then a few verses later, the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they shall come out with great possessions. So they're going to go into Egypt, and they're going to come out with great blessing. 
know for certain your offspring. Well, maybe they're just adopted. No, right? Can't be adopted like Eliezer who is adopted in his house. Nothing wrong with adoption at all. In fact, Jesus' lineage is proven by adoption. Jesus is the son of David because Joseph, his adoptive father, is a David son. Two lineages both go to Joseph. Neither one of them goes to Mary. So God is not opposed to adoption. Remember, we are adopted as sons. Adoption is great. But in this passage, God has a point to Abraham to make. And it's that adoption is not what I'm doing in this moment. It's not going to be Eliezer. It's going to be your son who comes from you biologically, who will be your heir, the father of your nations that come from you. Chapter 16. No. Uh, 15, 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your offspring, I give this land. 16, 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Now, why would it say this? What's the point of bringing that up at the beginning of that story? It's because it's introducing an obvious problem to what it's already said over and over. It's going to be your descendants, your descendants, your descendants. Not by adoption, your descendants. Now, Sarai hadn't borne him any children, so maybe it's going to be not through her. Maybe it's going to be through some other woman. But that is not the point of what God is doing. God makes a point, and we hear a long story about Abram and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah, or at this point, Abram and Sarai. And it introduces to us Abraham's big mistake of taking matters into his own hands. Sarai says, well, I'm too old. Obviously, this promise has got to come some other way. So I'll give you my servant. She's my servant, so any children you have by her will be counted, you know, through me and through you. So you should have a son with my servant Hagar. And Abraham does. Now, we should be, even when we do things that are wrong, sometimes there are consequences. Sometimes we do things that are wrong, and some believers have had children out of God's proper order. Those people are not mistakes. So I don't want you to mishear what I'm saying. When we have children because we've done something sinful, those children are still created in God's image. They are blessed, and God blesses his son, Ishmael, for the sake of Abraham, and because God comes and hears Hagar, the mother's prayer, he honors her, he honors Ishmael. So God is here, not opposed either to adoption, and he's not opposed to blessing children who are born due to sin. Those things are not what God does. But in this case, God says to Abraham, I didn't mean by some, someone else. I meant by Sarai. So it's going to be your biological son, and it's going to be her biological son. I know that you're 99 and that she's 89. And I mean it's your son that is going to get for you nations the size of the stars and the dust. Chapter 17. When Abraham, sorry, it's still Abraham. 
When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name will be called Abraham. Why? Because I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings and all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Later on in that chapter, God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Her name goes from being something that means domineering to meaning princess. So we're back to the idea of the royalty over the nations here. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. I told you this is a dead horse thing, right? You know what I mean? You're like, just get on with it because we've heard it. We've heard it. But if you were reading Genesis, you'd have to read through. You'd have to trudge through all of this to get to Genesis 22. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? That's a, that's a good one, God. And Abraham said to God, Oh, just, you know, Ishmael. Have you seen my son Ishmael? Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. You shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after verse 21, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And I want to add this verse in here for uh, for memory in a second. Verse 22, when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. You just store that away. You don't know why, but I'll bring it up in a second. 1810, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. This is where Sarah laughs. And then 1813, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Verse 14, is anything too hard for Yahweh? Are you laughing that I said an old man will have a baby and an old have a baby I fail to find that funny because you're not laughing at yourself you're laughing at my power what do you who do you think I am you know Abram had already been in chapter 15 he had been put to sleep by the Lord 
he'd seen a vision of the Lord walking through. The, he, they had cut covenant, cut the animals on the ground, and the Lord himself alone walked through the covenant, split animals with a fire pot and a torch. The miraculous thing, Abraham is not just somebody who heard some guy talking about a God that he had to follow some instructions about. This is a guy who regularly converses at an audible or at least at some detailed level with God and who has seen the miraculous already in his experience with God. Chapter 18 bears out more of that when chapter 18 God comes to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah with the angels. What does God say? This is not even to Abraham, but this is recorded for our benefit. What does God say amongst him and his counsel? Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that since since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has promised him And Abraham, when he's praying during this exchange about Sodom and Gomorrah, he gets God in a corner. Well, what about this 50 men? What about 30 men? What about 10? And God says, well, even for 10, I will spare Sodom and Gomorrah if there's 10 righteous men in the city. There weren't 10 righteous men in the city. Everybody in the city that was saved was in Abraham's house. But even there, I want to point out that God honors the children for the sake of the father. But when Abraham is, is putting God on the spot, he says to him, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. All right, so we have Genesis beating this drum over and over, not only about Abraham and his descendants, but also about the character of God who does not punish innocent people. Here, how dare you punish innocent people, Abraham says, and God says, you're right. I will not, if there are this many innocent people, well, there weren't, so he's going to destroy the city. Does that mean God is going to destroy the innocent if there's less than 10? No, he says, there's so few people, Abraham, listen, I'm just going to come pick you guys up. Because uh, I'm really anxious to display that evil is evil. I want to crush it. I need you guys out of the way. You guys are innocent. I'm taking you out of the way. They're innocent in the sense that they follow God. I'm not saying that they're sinless. But they belong to God, and God forgives sins. You heard it this morning, Psalm 130, right? If you, O Lord, would mark our sins, who could stand? But with you, it says later, there is redemption and plentiful forgiveness. 
in that psalm it says, you, you give forgiveness so that you may be feared. So we're not saying that the good people are the ones without sin, but they're the ones who trust God and he forgives them. And God says here that he doesn't execute innocent people for guilt. And we also hear that God is not Abraham's God, but God is Abraham's God and God of his children after him. So God is Isaac's God, too. The just God who always does what is right, who doesn't take guilt punishment out on innocent people, who is the God of Isaac, who is not just somebody who trusts in God and is forgiven by God, but is a child. This is God's God, is Isaac's God. What kind of God is he? He's the kind of God that said to Abraham in, in chapter 15, Abraham, I am your shield. Walk before me and be blameless. Your reward will be great. I protect my people. So all of this I'm saying to say, we still have the big, what the heck is going on with Genesis 22 problem. Because every bit of Genesis 22 seems to argue against everything else we've read. One of the problems that people who complain about the Bible and say it's nonsense is to say that Genesis 22 is an example of Bronze Age people writing in their ignorance, documenting their weird beliefs, and showing us the idiocy of their views. Oh, well, you should sacrifice your children. But that person, whoever says that, has not read Genesis. Genesis is self-aware. Let me, let me show you that Genesis knows that Genesis 22 is weird. Verse 2 says... Take your son. Now, what have we been saying for the last 15 minutes here? Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. I'm, I know I backed up. Abraham, I'm going I'm to give you a son. And that son is the single point of nations, of the multitude of nations, of kings and princes, of the blessing of the whole earth. You mean Eliezer? No, your son. Oh, you mean Ishmael? No, Abraham, I, I, Abram, I told you, I'm going to handle this. You shouldn't take this upon yourself. Well, that's, you're joking, right? No, I'm not joking. Are you, are you considering my power to be something to be laughed at? Is Sarah laughing at my power? I mean your son with Sarah. Well, in this situation, could Abraham have said, well, if we sacrifice Isaac, I know he had us have a child before, he could have us have another child. But no, we can't, because it's not just your son and Sarah's son. It is your son and Sarah's son, Isaac. And he said, it is through Isaac that my covenant shall be made. So the thing that has to, to happen in our recollection here is we have to say there is a complete impossibility in this passage. God is asking him to kill the 
only named source that God has promised about over and over and over and over. Unless God is able to raise someone from the dead. I want to I wanna tell you that this whole Christian idea of resurrection, Jesus on the cross, is not new to Christianity. It was the plan all along. In fact, Hebrews, Hebrews 11 tells us, explains this passage to us. Don't worry, I will get back to what I was saying reading the first verse of Genesis 22. But Hebrews tells us and explains this to us. And I want to let you breathe a little by hearing this explanation. Hebrews 11 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Okay, right there, the author of Hebrews, who I personally think is Paul, although it doesn't say literally for us, but Hebrews author says to us, let me point out to you that if you've been reading Genesis, you know that this is a problem. Because through Isaac shall your offspring be named is the key point. And now God is saying, and I want you to let go of the only way it can go. I want you to trust me when I say I both promise you that Isaac will be the son and that I want you to sacrifice him. Next verse in Hebrews. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Uh, similarly, in Romans 4, and I'm not going to read it to you because I, just, I can't extend it that much, but Romans 4, go read it later. It, it talks about Abraham believing God that they would have children when they were old. And it says about him there also that he, he believed that God was able to raise from the dead and create where there was not. That both when he believed God about their age and when he believed God about Isaac's sacrifice, in both cases it had to do with Abraham's belief that God was powerful enough to raise the dead. Now, is that something that the New Testament author, authors read out of wishful thinking? Or is there any chance that anything like that is present in the text? My first, my first argument for you that it is present in Genesis is the fact that Genesis is aware that this passage creates the exact problem which can only be can only be rescued by the power of God to do something which is impossible otherwise. But he says to him, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. I always think of that verse as the verse of twisting the knife. You know, I when someone says something to you to, to, to get at you, and then they say something else, and something else, 
just to keep putting on the pressure. This passage, if you were uncomfortable with this passage because you don't like the idea that God is taking Isaac from him, and then you think that this passage was written by someone who's unaware of that, why did they write this? Abraham, I want you to take Isaac, who I happen to have been mentioning in extreme detail for chapter after chapter after chapter, verse after verse. And I want you to take that one, the only one. It can't be Eliezer, it can't be Ishmael. It's got to be Isaac. And I want you to take that one, the only one through whom my promise can come to you. Your only son. He's not actually his only son, is he? But he is the only son who is still in his house because Ishmael has been pushed out to go live elsewhere. So Isaac is his only son through whom the promise can come. Isaac, to be specific, you know, the one that you love. And this is good modern sensibility writing. This is someone who knows that I'm trying to tell you that if this passage doesn't make you uncomfortable, you aren't reading it. And I want you to take him to Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Now that's a phrase that's worth focusing on. Offer him as a burnt offering. And this is a, this is a chance for us to, to see uh, what the Hebrew says The word burnt offering is not literally in the passage. Uh, But this is the normal word for burnt offering. It's just that the Hebrew word for burnt offering is not burnt offering. It's a word that we have brought onto it. In the Septuagint, when they translate the word burnt offering, they use the Greek word holocaust. Right? Hollow, whole, cost, burning whole burnt offering. It's literal translation of the Greek of this word. But that's not what the Hebrew translation is. That is why, of course, in English we refer to the extermination of Jews in Nazi concentration camps as a holocaust because we are set, they, the image is being set that they were a whole burnt offering. It's a religious image that's being brought. But in Hebrew, the word for whole burnt offering is not a whole burnt offering. It is the word rising thing. He says to him, I want you to offer up a offering which is to rise. I want you to make go up a thing which is going to go up. Remember I said I wanted you to remember this verse where it says that God was talking to him and at the end of it it said, when he had finished speaking with him, God went up from Abraham. Same word. Same exact word. Uh, there's there's a, another passage that's figurative of, of resurrection. Isaac being thrown into the pit. You remember he's going to be sold to the Midianites. His brothers, uh, not Isaac, I'm saying uh, Joseph. Joseph's thrown into the pit to be sold by the, to the Midianites. He goes into a pit, which is figurative of a grave. And then the Midianites come and they raise him out of the pit. Same word. They made him go up out of the pit. Going up. This is the normal. This is one of the normal words for going up. The last verses of Genesis were uh, Genesis 50, 24, where he says that uh, 
God is going to surely get the people out of Egypt. He says, um, and Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. You're going to go up. You're going to get out of Egypt when you go up. There is a key tenet to Christianity, a central, it's for dramatic effect I planned it, because I'm underlining this. There is nothing more important to Christianity than the doctrine of going up. You know what we call that? We call it resurrection. I want you to cause to rise an offering that will rise. And then we hear the New Testament authors say, oh yeah, Abraham believed that somebody would be able to rise. Well, there is in the passage, in the actual command, there is a part where it says that I want you to cause Isaac to rise. Abraham, I'd like you to go cause him to rise. Now, that is the actual word for burning a burnt offering. But it is in the passage for us. And do you know, notice, did you notice when he left his young men at the, at the, uh, with the donkeys, thank you. He said, uh, I and the boy are going to go, and then I and the boy are going to return. Abraham, in this passage, believes that Isaac is coming back. And in this passage, believes that God is going to raise him from the dead. And I want to point out to you, this passage is written 400 years before Moses tells anybody can't sacrifice your children. But all the surrounding people of all the surrounding religions that Abraham is around, they sacrifice their children. They build cities and they sacrifice their children and bury them in the cornerstone. They offer them to God so that they can get favor. And it's, we do we have any written record to tell Abraham that God would not say something like that? We don't. So he's tested, but what is amazing here is that Abraham is the kind of person who already believes that God protects the innocent and will do what is right. And he has already said, I believe the boy is coming back. When the boy says, where's the ram? Abraham says, not lying. God's going to take care of it. God is going to take care of it. Well, no passage discussion of Genesis 22 was complete without mentioning that Moriah, the place where he sacrificed Isaac, is the place that the Bible says Solomon built his temple and therefore is the hill upon which Christ died. So Jesus also died on this hill. So Jesus actually died. And Jesus was actually raised. It wasn't figurative. Now, I think it's really good for us that Isaac did not literally die and come back from the grave because God was able to at the same time make us really nervous and then say, stop, stop, stop. I'm not like that. I never, ever, ever, ever want any of you to ever sacrifice your children. I'm not like that. I hate that kind of worship. But I do know one thing about you, Abraham. I know that you fear me. Okay. I've used so much time here. I don't want us I don't want to belabor anything exegetical about my application here, but I want to say some positive applications here to this. 
James 4, 7, uh, 6 and 7. Two different, two opposite, uh, two opposite uh, ideas in a row. Or maybe I should say that they're opposite, but they're pairs that uh, go together. Keep turning past it, both directions. Short book. Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James. James 4 says, But he gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Verse 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. All right, so here's two things, a negative and a positive. Resist the devil. Just resist temptation. Don't sin, and it'll get easier. Secondly, act righteously, and God will draw near to you. Positive and a negative. Really great for Lent. Get rid of your sins. Spend some extra time with God. And those are both going to pay off. But we've been set up with the whole Bible. And we know from as early as Genesis 22. That sometimes following God's promises. Is extremely hard. not because God's promises are not really true. It's because God delights in showing how much power he has. And in order to show how much power he has, he has to rescue you from some really unpleasant things. Abraham, it says, believed God. Romans Romans 4 passage, it says, He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. He believed the promise so strongly that he was able to pass through impossible situations to get to those promises. Now, why did Abraham believe those promises so strongly? Well, I think, obviously, because of this. Because Abraham knew the character of a God who protected the innocent, who was just, who could be argued with by Abraham, his friend, and saying, this looks like you're about to do something evil. How dare you? Not because Abraham actually thought he was getting in God's face. I think Abraham knew what we ought to know about prayer. That God will not do something evil. And so when it looks like it, we can say, far be it from you to do something evil. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Aren't you going to do what you promised? Do you know that God rewards that kind of behavior in Scripture? Moses says when, the, when God is going to uh, kill, wipe out Israel for their sins in the wilderness, and Moses says to him, 
If you do this, do you know what the Egyptians are going to say about you? Do you know that they're going to say that you only brought us out here to kill us? They're going to say that you're evil. And God says, good, good. God likes being held to his promises. He likes being shown that the person he is, his person is paying attention to his words. God, I, I have it in black and white here. You said that you would uphold your promises, and it doesn't look like that's going to work out here. So I'm, I'm, I'm asking you, where is righteousness? That's a valid prayer. What are a couple of really hard things to do in life? One of them is to get rid of sins. But I want to tell you that the belief of Christians is that sins can be overcome. The Bible tells us, of course, that we will not ever live free from the sinful nature. You're going to be a sinner until you die, and then you will be raised without sin. But in this life, is it possible to pick a sin and put it away? Yes, it is. Don't raise your hands, but in your minds. How many of you have never considered murdering anyone? Don't raise your hands. It's possible to avoid some sins. And especially to pick a sin and say, this one, as Paul says in Romans 8, needs to be put to death. I put to death the misdeeds of the body. In James he says, stand firm then, resist the devil, and here's the promise, and he will flee from you. Alright, so it's painful at first. There's muscle pushing against. You're going to resist sin. But if you actually resist sin, instead of just saying over and over, oh, I'm sorry, oh, I wish I hadn't done that, oh, I wish I hadn't done that again. And we all do that. But when you want to deal with your sin, you actually have to say no to yourself. And you have to say, God's promises, this is going to get easier. If I just stand here, if I exercise my muscles some today, the next time I go to the gym, I'm going to lift a little more. If I say no today, I might be able to say no tomorrow. If I keep saying no, what will eventually happen? The devil will stop pestering you to do that. And your flesh will have been taught who is master. Jesus, not your flesh. It also tells you that if you draw near to God, he will draw near. We need to believe the character of God so strongly that even when obstacles come up in our way, oh, I was trying to stay away from this and then this other temptation just showed up on my doorstep. That's because the devil's getting really worried. You try to stay away from something and then it shows up in force. You may be about to win. You just need to resist the devil and then he will flee from you. What about if you been righteous for a long, long time and you're still languishing in troubles. I've done good so long, God. How come I'm in so much trouble? 
How come I'm in so much loneliness? How come I'm in so much poverty? How come I'm in so much fear? I keep obeying you. And I know I have a friend who has, has in, in intense, visible ways, remained extremely faithful despite problem after problem after problem coming into his life. I, I don't know anyone who has endured so much pain as he has endured faithfully. And he wonders over and over, why is it still like this? But if I were speaking to that friend, I would say to him, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Or I would tell him, blessed is the man who walks not after the counsel of the ungodly, or stands in the path of sinners, or sits in the seat of the scoffers. But since your delight is in the law of the Lord, and you think about him day and night, I will tell you this. You shall be like a tree firmly planted near streams of water, and in due season you will bear fruit. There is fruit to come for faithfulness. It may be long, it may be slow, but the character of God is as he promises. There is fruit for patience. And those are, those are all my points. So I want to encourage you, if you, uh, if you think about Lent in the future, and you think about the idea, well, is there any benefit to fasting other than the fact that fasting is still prescribed in the New Testament by the apostles? Acts 14 is a reference if you need to go see it. think is there any benefit to the self-discipline of something like fasting in the New Testament? Let me tell you this. It's, it's muscle training. Pick something. You know how you learn to not do something bad? Is you learn to not do something good. Because you can't practice with the bad stuff. You know, if you were trying to learn to be a surgeon, you can't practice on I'm sure at some level you do practice. But what I'm saying is the beginner doesn't take, doesn't take a living person and say, well, let's see what happens when I cut them this way. You have to practice at levels to get to the point where you know you know how to do that. And then you can do it. So how do you learn to put away pornography? How do you learn to put away alcoholism? How do you learn to put away anger? practice by not having soda. You practice by not having, I don't know, sometimes Lent's talked about like you're just not going to eat meat. And so the, the Orthodox do this for like even longer, for 70 days, they don't, they don't eat meat. I think that that's too hard to start with. But instead of looking at, at it as something that's like a a law to trip you up or something to feel guilty about when I said I wasn't going to have soda and then I, you know, my kids were having soda and I had a little bit with them and oops, is God against me now? And God didn't say you had to do Lent. But challenging yourself to say no to something good is a way to know that you can say no to something. And knowing you can say no to something enables you to say no to something saying no to something evil once is a way to know that you can say no to something evil twice. And once you've gotten in a habit, the promise kicks in, resisting the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Let's pray. 
Father, you were not the God we would have invented if we had invented a God. And yet, what a, what a miss it would have been if we had to invent our own God. Would we have written Genesis 22? I don't think so. Thankfully, you did. God, thank you for not being the kind of God that wants us to sacrifice children. Thank you for teaching us that you could be trusted even when your promises mean we have to endure suffering, endure pain or confusion. I pray that you would bolster in us our confidence in your absolute goodness. You are righteous. You are just. You protect innocence and you forgive guilt. And you encourage us that we can get out of trouble. You let Abraham have nations after he screwed up. After he did the wrong thing with him with uh, Hagar and, and uh, you still came to him and gave him Isaac and you still gave him nations and you even blessed Ishmael what a forgiving God you are what a good God you are I pray that you would impress upon us your goodness is so strong it can get us through the toughness of trusting in your goodness 